When you don't have a high school diploma, you walk around feeling like you're missing something in life. And there's an African proverb that children who aren't loved by the village will burn the village down to feel it's warm. And people who don't have a high school diploma are always fighting to figure out a way to get what everybody else has. So they become the child trying to find the warmth in the village. And giving people a high school diploma takes away their desire to burn the village down. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Anise Mabry, founder and executive director at the Dr. Anise Mabry Foundation. Anise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. It's always a pleasure to talk to, number one, a fellow podcast host. Yes. Number two, a fellow female podcaster. And number three, to be able to spotlight the foundation and the work that we're doing. I'm super excited and I am happy to have you on and excited for this interview. So let's start off with telling us about the foundation. The foundation actually didn't start as a foundation. It started as a homeschool cooperative. And it started as a homeschool cooperative because I was a homeschool mom Ah. for over a decade. And I needed to buy curriculum for my son and my daughter because my son at the time was struggling with reading comprehension. And so the curriculum that I wanted to buy was only being sold to nonprofit organizations and school districts. So I did what any reasonable, sane, logical person would do. I hired an attorney and created a nonprofit organization and went and bought the curriculum. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What moms do for their children, right? Yes. And so in creating the nonprofit organization, I created it as a community economic development organization and not just as a homeschool cooperative. And I think that for a lot of people, community economic development organization, most people don't even know what that means because it's a fancy government term. Right. Simply put, it means that I have the ability to show up in a community to partner with community stakeholders, municipalities, and counties to be their nonprofit leverage to give them access to funds that they may not always have access to. Okay, so hang on. How do you go from a homeschool cooperative to being a community economic development organization? How does that happen? 
You know, I've been trying to figure that one out myself, but it kind of morphed into that. So once I had given my daughter a high school diploma as a homeschool graduate, I had a group of students from Georgia Tech about to graduate, and they didn't have any community service. And that was one of the requirements. I think one of their continuing education pieces for their degree was that they needed to have built something for a community. So they came to me and they said, hey, we found you on LinkedIn, and we know that you are a certified police officer. We know that you've got a background in law enforcement. We know that you're really passionate about working with law enforcement agencies. And we've written this algorithm of sorts, this program, and it predicts the areas most likely to experience another Ferguson. Most people don't know what experiencing a Ferguson means. So in Ferguson, Missouri, Mike Brown was gunned down by police officers, and it created a very contentious relationship between the community and the law enforcement agencies there. Right. So what these students did was they built a program where you could put in certain data variables and it would give you the probability of an area experiencing something like that in the future. I was impressed. How did they find you? On LinkedIn because of your homeschool cooperative? I guess what they were doing is they were digging around on LinkedIn. And I also had a podcast network at the time too. Okay. And so I would push out just one or two episode podcasts about things that we were doing or things that I was doing. That just goes to show you that when people are digging for stuff, they can find stuff that they want to find. Right, right. I had done an episode where I was talking with my neighbor about helping her daughter who had dropped out of school get her high school diploma and being able to leverage that piece. I don't even know how they connected the two, but I think, I really think what happened is they were just reaching out to anybody who had a nonprofit that they could come in and work with. Because at first they started with, you know, well, can we volunteer in your warehouse? Well, I don't have a warehouse. Well, can we do this? Well, okay, I don't do that. Well, we know that you have a background in law enforcement. Ah. So can we show you our program? Okay, you can show me your program. And I always joke that some of the the chance encounters that you have in life create some of the most miraculous journeys. Right. Okay, so let's go back to these grad students. They had research, and what were they trying to show or prove? With the grad students, what they wanted to prove was they wanted to show different variables and how this contributed to an area or a police department or a community having the likelihood of becoming another Ferguson. Ah. When they explained it to me, I was like, okay. And, you know, typically in law enforcement, we always say that if you don't have law enforcement officers who reflect your community, it makes it very difficult for the community and for the officers too. Well, when we were working with their model and we dumped in all of our data, their model, it had different colors. So if an area was green, that meant that area was good. The likelihood of them experiencing something like Ferguson was less than like 0.11%. If it was yellow, it was like 10%. If it was red, there was a high probability that within the next five to 10 years that they were going to experience an event 
like a Ferguson. Wow. And as we went through and we're dropping the data in, I'm watching the numbers go from green to yellow, green to yellow, green to yellow. And there was one particular county in Georgia that kept staying red. Wow. No matter what we did in this county, no matter what variables we put in there with income, with changing the officer's race, with changing the number of people with college degrees. Then we found out the Georgia Policy Institute came out with a study about the same time as we were playing with all of our data. And I found that county in that Georgia Policy Data Institute, and it showed that 32% of the 18 to 24-year-olds in that county didn't have a high school diploma. And 36% of the 24 to 34-year-olds didn't have a high school diploma. And so I turned to the graduate students and I said, this is why it's not changing. Oh, so you could kind of play around with the model, but until you get more people graduating with a high school diploma, your numbers aren't changing and your risk factors aren't changing. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. Ah. And I think that's the one piece that a lot of researchers miss when they're doing stuff like this. Because when people think about educational attainment, Joanna, they think about the number of people in the community who are college graduates. Or they focus on law enforcement because they say law enforcement's the problem. Yes. And obviously there are problems with law enforcement, but you have to think about it in the broader context. And the percentage of people with a high school diploma turns out to be very, very important. It was a critical, pivotal game changer. And then when you think about homeschool cooperatives and homeschoolers in general in law enforcement, typically those two have a very contentious relationship with each other because a lot of times family and children's services tends to weaponize police departments and law enforcement agencies against homeschool families if they don't understand homeschool law. Ah. And law enforcement typically doesn't understand homeschool law, even though There's a whole educational code section in everyone's legal code section of whatever state or county you're in. So it's like I was navigating on like all of these different balance beams. And I know that, number one, if I don't change the red to green in Macon County, I know that we're going to end up seeing something that we don't want to see on the news happen in that county. Right. And then it's decades and generations of hurt and pain and distrust. And another driving factor in this is my sister, who's also in law enforcement, had taken a part-time job in Macon County in the city of Marshallville. As all of this is happening, I kept asking her, I'm like, what is going on? Why is this county, no matter what we do, it's not moving? And she couldn't even tell me. She's like, I don't know. She said, it's just, we've got one stop sign. She's like, there's not a lot of crime. And I said, there's not a lot of crime. You've got one stop sign. So why is this county not moving from red to green? And when I told her, I was like, I said, 32% of the 18 to 24-year-olds don't have high school diplomas. And she said, what? I said, yeah. So at that time, she's just an officer, so she didn't have the power to help me really push a a policy level. 
So I start going to all of the law enforcement agencies in the county. And at that time, there were five. There were four police departments and a sheriff's department. And every police department that I went to, they were like, no, no, not interested, because they really didn't understand what I was saying to them. And what you were saying to them was, if we increase graduation rates, we will decrease the risk of another Ferguson. Yes. And so what you were doing was kind of bridging two worlds, your law enforcement world with your homeschool world. Yeah. And you were saying, let's get graduation rates up either in the public schools or through homeschooling. Yeah. And they didn't get the message. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand because they kept thinking, well, if we've got dropouts, then they can just go to the GED program. And I'm like, but you don't understand the GED program, only 20% of people who take the GED actually pass all five tests and 80% aren't coming back to retest. And this is where your gap is coming in. And they were like, well, I don't think those numbers are really accurate. And so I found one chief, her name was Rachel Hart. She was the first female chief of police in the city of Oglethorpe. I called her up and I said, hey, I've got this idea. It's going to sound crazy. I said, but please just hear me out. And she's like, okay. So I told her about the model. I told her that I had talked to all of the other agencies in Macon County. If you don't want to do this, it's okay. I said, because nobody else wants to do it either. But if we do this, I think we can change your community. She said, um, well, I'll be honest with you. She said, our crime rate is a little over 69% here. Oh. And she said, and we have five national street gangs operating in 2.1 square miles. I said, okay. And she said, I have two streets in my city that patrol cars can't drive down. So if you still want to come and try this program in my city, you're welcome. I said, okay. I said, I'm in. And what did this program look like? What's this model that you were encouraging her to try out? What it was, it was actually really simple. So I leveraged my experience as a dean of graduate studies. You know, when students come into higher education, if they've taken classes anywhere else, we use all of those classes on their transcript. I simply applied that model to a homeschool program. I was like, if we can get the students' transcripts, and I created my own grading scale, I said, so a 60 is going to be passing with us where a 70 is passing in the public school. And I said, and we're going to loop the parents in so that we are healing families and we're going to empower parents to issue a homeschool high school diploma. And the chief is like, we're going to do what? I was like, we're going to teach parents how to issue homeschool high school diplomas because in Georgia, a parent or a guardian can issue a homeschool high school diploma to their child at any age. And she's like, is this even legal? So I pulled out the code section. I was like, OCGA 22690. And she's like, how did you even find this code section? But you don't want parents just issuing high school diplomas. There's got to be learning behind this. And there's got to be, like you said, engagement on the part of the families and engagement on the part of the parents. So that's got to be part of the model. Then that was a huge part of the model. So what we did is... I had always used an online program and built online curriculum because that's my background. 
And I knew that working with adult learners, I had to have something that was flexible, portable, and that they could get immediate results from. So I used the accelerated model that we have in college where students work on one class for four weeks at a time. And then they finish that one class and they move on to the next class. So I figured out how to condense a one-year high school academic class into four weeks. And Joanna, it was really a no-brainer because when you think about summer school and kids going to summer school in high school. That's what they do. That's what they do. So I'm like, okay, so this is a no-brainer. I was just surprised that nobody had ever figured this out before me. So I told the chief, I said, we need to figure out how many people in your community don't have high school diplomas. So it just so turned out that the day that I would talk to her about this, they had probation, state probation, actually worked out of her police department too. So she sat outside with a clipboard because, you know, we were all very sophisticated with our data collection models. <laughs> and she did tallies. And when somebody would walk in to pay their fines, she would say, hey, do you have a high school diploma? Ah. So she came back to me and she said, you know what I've learned? Nine out of 10 people on state probation in my county don't have a high school diploma. Wow. So we don't know what the correlation is, but we know that people without at least high school diplomas have worse job outcomes. Yes. They have worse job outcomes. They have higher incidence of law enforcement encounters. They have higher incidence of negative law enforcement encounters. They have higher incidence of their likelihood of child abuse, child neglect, child mistreatment. Anise, how does a high school diploma change all of those variables? Because when you don't have a high school diploma, you walk around feeling like you're missing something in life. And there's an African proverb that children who aren't loved by the village will burn the village down to feel its warmth. And people who don't have a high school diploma are always fighting to figure out a way to get what everybody else has. So they become the child trying to find the warmth in the village. And giving people a high school diploma takes away their desire to burn the village down. Wow. So you put this program together with Chief of Police Oglethorpe. What's been the result? We launched that program in 2018. We graduated 13 students in our first class. And at first, everybody was like, those diplomas, they're not real. They're not real diplomas. Well, all of our graduates in that first graduating class, we've had three of them go to technical college. One of them is actually getting ready to graduate from Georgia Southwestern University. One of them has graduated from EMT school. Several of them have gotten jobs at industries like Tyson and International Paper. One of them is now a regional manager with a department store. And prior to that, all of those jobs were unaccessible and unavailable because they didn't have the minimum entry requirement. Right. So you opened up a bunch of doors for them. Yes. And are you seeing more people go through the program in this town? We are. So now this program is actually inside of nine police departments and two sheriff's departments. 
And again, it's a homeschool cooperative. And the beautiful thing is watching families that heal as a result of this, because a lot of times parents and children become estranged when the child drops out of school, regardless of how old the child is. Ah. Giving that parent the opportunity to award that high school diploma, it heals the family in a way that I can't even describe. I've had school board members who've had their children who've dropped out of school. Now they come on stage with me to present diplomas to their own children. Amazing. Anise, you have another program that you call the Community Policing Center, and it's another partnership with rural police departments. Tell us about that, because I think this is a wonderful program. The Southwest Georgia Community Policing Resource Center was actually born a little bit from my working with the Oglethorpe Police Department and just being able to ride the city with the chief and see the need in the families. And it's actually a partnership with Walmart. So I have contracts with five different Walmart stores who donate to my nonprofit organization every week all of their clearance stuff, all of their markdown stuff, all of their damage stuff, all of their returns. And each agency has to take turns. I call it like a little chore chart. Everybody's assigned a pickup day. And if you can't pick up on your pickup day, it's your responsibility to find somebody else who can. And so they take this back to their agencies and they create the cops closet. And the cops closet is basically a resource center for anyone in the community in need to be able to come in or if they've had an interaction with an officer, like officers are really the eyes on the street because they're going to the calls and they're seeing the children with no shoes on in the wintertime, or they're seeing the babies who don't have any diapers, or they're seeing the mother who it's cold and they have no coat. So they're seeing all of this. And a lot of times what officers in rural communities do is they take money out of their own pockets to help these families. But then you're talking about officers who are barely making above minimum wage and living wage trying to support another family who is below minimum wage and living wage. So that's why the Resource Center is so important. Sheriff Billy Hancock, who's the sheriff of Chris County, he was so gracious to allow me to put the Resource Center inside of his agency. It's a beautiful location because he's right off of 75, and he's like within an hour driving distance of most of the rural areas that really need this help the most. Amazing. So anybody can come in or the police officers can go into the closet and pull out stuff for people that they meet? Yes and no. Not anyone can come in. So you have to have had an interaction with the law enforcement officer I see. to get access. And they also partner with other nonprofits in their area because When you think about it, Walmart is filling up a five-by-eight trailer every week of stuff. And the goal is so that we move this stuff within a week, so that it's just not sitting there collecting dust. And it's everything, right? It's furniture, it's clothing, it's pencils. It's everything, yes. Okay. And like the toys, they actually had to rent a whole warehouse one time because Walmart sent me an 18-wheeler full of toys. Amazing. 
Listeners, I will put a link in the show notes to the website, to the foundation's website. And what you'll see is that this Community Policing Resource Center has so many programs like Backpack with a Cop, Christmas with a Cop, the Cop's Closet, et cetera. And I bet what you were doing was these items from Walmart. I mean, I guess the police officers might deliver toys to kids during the holidays. They do. And we actually used to go with blue lights and sirens because a lot of times in your areas that have a high rate of poverty, the only time that they see law enforcement is when something bad happens in their community. And the only time that they hear blue lights and sirens are when something bad happens. I see. But this way, they're seeing blue lights, hearing a siren, and something great is happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and we would run blue lights and sirens through all of the neighborhoods, and the kids would run out. And the first year that we tried to do this, we went blue lights and sirens, and none of the kids would come to the police car. Because usually that's bad news. And I was so frustrated that first year. I mean, Joanna, that first year I was like, we're just not going to do this anymore. It was my sister and my chief. They were like, no, we're going to do it again. This was the first time you've got to realize that nothing like this has ever been done here before. Right, right. We spent that whole year just talking to people and asking them, you know, hey, what do you need? For example, one of the law enforcement agencies that I work with, they told me that they had a very high juvenile truancy rate. And I was like, okay, well, why are your juveniles truant? So we started drilling down and it found out that the majority of their juvenile truancy was happening the first three weeks of school. And as an educator, I know that the first three weeks of school are your most important time because that's where the kids are getting that relationship with the teacher. They're building the relationships with each other. And if you're not there, you're missing out on learning. And you're getting the lay of the land, the school. Yes. You're getting your assignments for the rest of the year. All of that. So I'm like, why are these kids missing school? Well, it turned out as budgets got cut and schools started making the school supply list bigger and bigger and bigger, families in poverty couldn't afford to buy the school supplies. So they would keep the kids home trying to save up money to buy the school supplies. And I was like, oh my gosh, let me reach out to some of my donors. So I partnered with For the Kid and all of us in Atlanta. I partnered with the Hearts and Clouds Foundation. I partnered with Dollar General Literacy Foundation. I partnered with the Coca-Cola Foundation, with the International Paper Foundation. I partnered with small businesses. I would say, okay, I need your small business to sponsor 30 cases of pencils. So then I would have backpacking parties and you would have to stuff the backpacks that we got. And so then we started passing them out and it wasn't a free-for-all where you could just come up to the police department and get it. It had to be families that we knew were truly in need and we would take the backpacks to them. And then we started trying to put books in the backpacks because what we also learned is that some of the kids, even though there were libraries, they didn't have transportation to get to the library and they didn't have internet to read the e-books. Anise, what a tragedy that this is happening in America. Yes. That kids are dropping out of school because they don't have pencils and backpacks. Yeah. And internet access. And internet access. You know, during the pandemic, I was so floored. One county that I work in, they were like, we're going to go virtual learning. Okay, great. We're going to send the buses out with the food so that the kids aren't hungry. Okay, great. 
we're going to park the buses at the fire station and the kids can come up there and get them. Okay, do you realize that the majority of the kids in your county live down dirt roads and that the fire station is more than five miles away? I'm like, clearly we created this plan from a place of privilege. Uh, So they didn't really have eyes and ears on the ground to really understand where the kids are. Yes. And like during the pandemic, when kids were trying to figure out how are we going to get online, we don't have computers. So the Winters Foundation gave me computers and Lincoln Technology gave me computers and State Farm gave me computers. And so what I did was I in turn started putting these computers inside city halls and inside police departments. And I'm like, okay, if y'all know families that need computers, get these families these computers. Nice. Very nice. Anise, before we go, how do you know that you're making a difference? And I'm sure you see it every day, but give us an example. I think the biggest way that I know that I'm making a difference is in the lives that are changed. One of my passions and how I really thrive is through my partnerships with municipalities and counties. And I've been able to help municipalities like the city of Tennell. I was able to write them a $13 million water sewer treatment grant. So for the first time since the 70s, that city is going to have clean drinking water. Wow. They're going to have a brand new water treatment plant. I was able to write a $1.6 million grant for the Washington County Sheriff's Office to create a mobile co-responder unit. That's how I'm making a difference. It's not so much as what I'm doing for people in this moment, but it's what I'm creating for the moments that are going to come next, for the moments that come after this moment. That's how I know I'm making a difference. Anise, this has been a life-changing interview. I am so grateful to you for coming on the show. And wow, what an amazing story. Thank you for everything that you're doing in Georgia and for kids and families everywhere. I hope you'll come back because there are so many things you're doing that we didn't even get to talk about. Absolutely. I would be back with you anytime. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!